Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlips Sequetan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetan Ulu. And today's text, Wildhood, is set and filmed in and around the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia, which is part of Mi'kma'ki, the homeland of the Mi'kmaq peoples. Like the sky or the ocean. To me, they look the same. And what if they don't fit anywhere? That's how your mother felt. She felt like she didn't belong. You said she was dead! She's dead the day she left this house, alright? She don't want you. into dirt bikes what's your favorite ride are you micmac link's micmac no i'm not it's micmac yeah we don't need your help that's all that for galia for dancing a good dancer can make a bit of cat you any good Joe, mm-hmm. I want to make a note that uh, we are recording this on uh, National Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes. Which I was like surprised and delighted to find that alignment. Mm-hmm. It's very like fortuitous, right? It portends good things. And I also want to note that within Mi'kma'ki, there's a common phrase. It's, it's used elsewhere, but I think that it's particularly pervasive in the the Mi'kma'ki and Mulastikwe territories, which is the idea that we are all treaty people. Hmm. Oftentimes in a Canadian context, anyway, we tend to think of treaties as something that is like for Indigenous people. But treaties are two-sided, like two sides agree (laughs) to a treaty. And so I like this notion of like, we are all treaty people, particularly just to think about it today in relation to the fact that like, how do settlers hold up their responsibilities under the treaties that make up the territory of Canada? Like, I find all that really important. And I think that in many ways, wildhood is a really interesting exploration of like, what it looks like when when those responsibilities are not upheld. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very much a story that is about someone trying to reconnect with their culture because, mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, we're going to dig into it because, of yeah. course, that's what this mini-sode is all about. But I was intrigued that the starting point is basically in Indigenous youth who has been cut off from their culture. Mm-hmm by a parent who doesn't identify as indigenous, but Mm -hmm. also because in some ways, I think they were raised not to care. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's a really 
intriguing idea, particularly as we explore indigenous works that are contemporary, right? Like we often have Mm -hmm. this conversation about indigenous people not being folklore. They're not people who used to be here and now they're not. Like they're still very much here, but I'm always intrigued by the tension between how much responsibility do I have to my people and how does that get negotiated? Yeah, and I think the film is very much interested in that notion of disconnection and Mm -hmm. reconnection and how do you define yourself. And in many ways for our protagonist here, the story of reconnecting to indigeneity is also a story about connecting to sexuality. And so like how those things are kind of interwoven into the tapestry that becomes someone's identity, I think is a really interesting piece of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it makes the story a lot more complex. I agree. Yeah, because I think on the surface, this looks like it could just be a very simple kind of road trip movie with Mm -hmm. two two spirited indigenous youths and then a younger brother who's a bit of a a nuisance. But um, yeah, yeah, I do think that there's a lot more going on under the surface. Yeah, so um, maybe I'll start with a brief plot summary and then we'll dig into it. Mm -hmm. So Wildhood is the story of Lincoln. Lincoln is, as Joe mentioned, a young man. He's in his late teens. He's been disconnected from his heritage. He's when, when the film opens, we, we basically meet him trying to dye his hair blonde. Mm-hmm. There's a real sense of a desire to have more affinity to his younger brother, Travis, his half-brother, Travis, who he feels a real sense of protection over um, and right. responsibility for, but who he feels also acutely the differences between them. And I think it's... You know, there's a reason he dyes his hair blonde, which is Mm -hmm. the color of Travis's hair. Yep. Travis and Lincoln are living with their abusive father, Arvin. Shout out to Joel Thomas Hines, who apparently just plays abusive (laughs) white men in these stories. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, he's got a bread and butter kind of role, I guess. <laughs> Apparently. Um, although here his, uh, Atlantic Canadian accent is really doing a lot of work. Um, so... In and amongst a sort of uh, physical altercation with his father um, and a, an attempt to escape, he Lincoln discovers that, like he's basically trying to steal the truck keys, but what he mm-hmm. actually ends up discovering is that his mother, who he's always been told is dead, is not in fact dead and has written him letters and tried to connect with him. And his father has prevented that connection from taking place. Yep. And so this begins a road trip. What I think is so interesting is that the abuse between Arvin and Travis, the younger brother, is never really articulated on screen, except that Mm -hmm. Travis has this patch over his eye. Yeah. So obviously something has happened to him. Yeah. But the fact that Lincoln doesn't escape just for himself, but instead takes Travis with him, which makes everything about his journey harder, Mm -hmm. I think speaks to the abuse and the depravity of Arvin, which is contrasted against the way all the other adults in the film talk about Arvin as if he's like a really upstanding guy. On the way to escape to nowhere, basically. Yeah, we have no idea where we're going. No plan, no money. Zero plan. And they uh, run into Pazme, who uh, lets them use his truck and slowly starts to introduce Really, Travis first, actually, and then slowly Lincoln begins to take interest, but to um, his Mi'kma'ki culture. It's fascinating because Travis is like, Travis wants to learn, like, 
different words and stuff out of sort of just a childlike curiosity. And right. Lincoln has these huge walls built up around learning oh, yeah. anything about mm-hmm. his indigeneity, right? Which to him is just this complete like blank space mystery. Yeah, which is super fascinating, right? Because he wants desperately to reconnect with his mother. So this is his mother, not Travis's mother. And Travis actually has no connection to her at all. He's literally just along for the ride. But Link is, you're right, he's got some really significant emotional issues. He maybe is one of the angriest male protagonists Mm -hmm. we have ever encountered on the show. Mm -hmm. And I guess just a quick shout out to Philip Lewitsky, the actor, because... He is all rage and anger and defensiveness. Like you can almost see his boundaries throughout the entirety of the film. And I think it's just a really raw emotional performance. But yeah, I was so fascinated by this idea that he's not actually interested in reconnecting with his heritage initially. He just wants to get to his mother as though the two can be separated. Yeah, it's fascinating because there's all this, well, I mean, it's internalized racism, right? It is. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. When Lincoln sees Pazme, it's like everything he doesn't want the world to see him as. He's dying his yes. hair blonde to look less indigenous, and he certainly doesn't want the world to see him as queer. He mm-hmm. really resents the question when it's asked of him, like, if he's interested in boys. He's he's absolutely in like unwilling to go there. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, like Pazme is everything about Lincoln that he's trying to avoid in himself. So of course he makes a perfect foil in love interest. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is how it goes, especially in YA. Anyway, as the road trip progresses, they have a lot of roadblocks. In fact, if there's one thing about the film, it's like there's a lot of stumbling blocks in the way, mm-hmm. maybe a lot of kind of repeated stumbling blocks. But um, yeah. we meet some great additional side characters, including a, a great turn by Michael Gray Eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, And ultimately, we get a culmination of both Lincoln finding his way to the family he's always wanted. And apparently Travis is also going to stay with the family, which is good. I kept kind of wondering what happened to Travis moments during the film. I was like, where is that kid? And I was always worried something was going to happen to him. Like when um, Pazme and uh, Lincoln are having their romantic tryst under the waterfall, Mm -hmm. I was like, He's just sleeping. I was like, if this is one of those movies where Travis is getting murdered right now, I'm going to be really mad. It wasn't. Um, (laughs) I kept waiting for Child Protective Services, but apparently Arvin just does not care enough about either of his two children. So, yeah, we never had to deal with that. Thank goodness. I, I was glad of that too. We have a chase at the beginning, like a like a physical car <laughs> chase, um, where yeah, Arvin tries so to so well shot too. Very well shot, very exciting to watch. But I was worried it was going to be one of those tropes where they are continually mm-hmm. avoiding Arvin, and instead, yes. and quite both appropriately and in a way that I welcomed very much, Arvin is written entirely out of the story as it Thank becomes goodness. not about mm-hmm. the abusive family of origin, but instead all the doors that Pazme is opening, both in terms right. of like family, heritage, connection, and love. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. my synopsis, Joe. A very nicely done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that people will discover, I sort of teased it off the top, is that on the surface, this film can seem very simple. And I think that's actually by design. Uh, so this was written and directed by Breton Hannum. And they really constructed this film as almost a prototypical road trip movie, right? So mm-hmm. we're getting a lot of great scenic shots, which 
I'm always so appreciative of the way that indigenous stories interact with the land. And Mm -hmm. I really feel like this film is a depiction and almost a love letter to rural Nova Scotia because it's a lot of like backfields and woods and that kind of stuff. I could watch the scenery all day. It's beautiful. Right. And, And I mentioned that the shot of the chase is really well staged. That's courtesy of cinematographer Guy Godfrey. And if folks like the look and feel of this film, I would highly encourage you to check out uh, Giant Little Ones, which is one of my favorite Canadian films, also queer from a couple of years ago. So I'm, I'm just a big fan of the way that Godfrey shoots films. Mm. But In short, I mean, I think Hannam is doing something not particularly revolutionary in terms of the storytelling, and this mood is more of a vibe. And I think that that works in its favor for the most part. It's just that the runtime is about an hour and 50 minutes, and it does feel like it's a little too dragged out. Yeah, I agree. There are things I really love about this film. I actually love the dynamic between Link, Pasme, and Travis. I know mm-hmm. that Travis is an annoying little brother, but I actually think the he scenes is, where yeah. the three of them are together are yeah. very, like, they're funny. Mm-hmm. You can feel this fierce love between Link and Travis, but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of resentment under the surface of that. And yeah. the two of them are playing it really, really well. Like, I think the actor who plays Travis, he's very young and he's, well, I tend to be annoyed by <laughs> Actors, don't I? No, for Um, sure, for sure. Particularly in serials, and he does a really good job here. So I loved that, and I thought that the romance was really beautiful. I really appreciated the happy ending. Like I think that we've Mm -hmm. watched so so many tragic and dark stories about queerness, and tragic Mm -hmm. and dark stories about indigeneity, and to bring them together and still have a happy ending, I thought was like beautiful and transgressive and interesting. It doesn't mean that I think every single thing in this film worked. No. And I did spend a fair amount of time reading the critiques um, in various film reviews, some of which I agree with and some of which I I have questions about. But in general, I think this is a film that's really worth your time. And it's, Mm -hmm. especially if you don't know Atlantic Canada, I think that this is a film that you could easily get lost in, even with the two-hour runtime, because the world is really brought to life in, in a very loving way. Yeah. Yeah, I will agree with that. There were times where I I almost had difficulty recognizing what part of the country we were supposed to be in. And mm-hmm. I think that that is a bit of a testament to the local geography because there's more going on in Nova Scotia than I think <laughs> even Canadians tend to realize. Like, I fully thought that this movie was going to be set in Halifax. And mm-hmm. that was just me being presumptuous and saying, oh, well, what else is there except the biggest city in that province and of course shockingly enough there's plenty of other places and i love that we're trafficking on the back roads and visiting these small towns like the little segment with michael gray eyes who is just always so welcome every (laughs) time he shows up i thought it was so fun that he's a cake maker and we just have this weird interaction (laughs) where link actually misgenders their nephew in this convenience store and it's such a funny sort of confrontational little battle of wills and then we're just we're you know we're moving on we're kind of done like people flit in and out of this movie and in some ways that feels representative of what life is like right you know we have little moments of traumatics and then that person disappears and we proceed on 
Joe, in that scene where they are just eating the fistfuls of cake, I have right. never wanted a piece of white cake more in my life than watching <laughs> Link eat that giant piece of cake with his bare hands. It's just like, I also want cake. This movie should come with free cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I praise Lewitsky. And he doesn't have a lot of acting experience, really. He's only got about these two notable credits. And it really comes out in even the sheer physicality, right? Like, he looks like he's so angry at this cake, (laughs) even as he's devouring it. And I thought the physicality was so interesting and impressive. It's really different from the way the other characters are acting. I agree completely. I also want to make a note about what you said about the rural landscape, too. Mm -hmm. I'm always wary about using sort of settler film or literary scholarship to talk about Indigenous art in the context of Canada, Mm -hmm. because so much of scholarship has been about subsuming Indigenous art under the mantle of Canlit. Right. But there's this one book that I find helpful here as part of why this film is so successful visually, and I think important visually. So there's a book called Anne of Tim Hortons. Oh my and gosh, so, okay. <laughs> and it's all about how Atlantic Canada is sold and marketed, right? right? And this idea of this part of the world that is like a step back in time, mm-hmm. you're walking back into like history, but it's a very whitewashed settler colonial history. Course, you know, yeah. think about the fact that like you can walk around Charlottetown PEI and literally see people dressed as Anne of Green Gables and other mm-hmm. characters from those books like interacting in contemporary space. So it's like a theme park. Yes, and that's exactly it. It's exactly like the Nova Scotia slogan used to be Canada's ocean playground. It's this idea of like we took this part of the country that is the most economically depressed and we froze it in time so rich people can visit and have fun. Yay. Um <laughs> And and I think that that's still, I mean, that book is from the early 2000s, but I think it's still really true. You know, if you think about, if you've flown on an Air Canada flight, you get those ads for Newfoundland and Labrador that make it look oh, like yeah. no uh-huh. human beings live in Newfoundland no. and Labrador, right? Yeah, it's like untapped landscapes. Like, you will never meet another person the whole time you're here. Um, Okay. So I'm super grateful for any depiction of Atlantic Canada that chooses instead to show sort of some grittiness, some mm-hmm. realness, some like hyper realistic, like the scene where, you know, Link is getting beaten up by Arvin is horrible to watch. And also to me, it's just such a departure from the way Atlantic Canadian families are often represented on film, which is often sort of a settler colonial sort of like reserved Protestant like Britishness that like uh, okay. makes them feel sort of untouchable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing new about seeing stories of Atlantic Canada that are steeped in alcohol and drugs, for sure. But I think what's so interesting here is the way that Hannum is asking us to look at this part of Atlantic Canada that you've maybe never seen before, never been to before, asking you to see it exactly as it is and find the love for it that they have. And I think that that's really quite lovely in the context of the way we usually market that part of the country. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the scenes that I was really intrigued and kind of surprised to see is that we do interact with a small town gay bar. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually disappointed that the scene doesn't go on longer because I really wanted to investigate who was going to this establishment and like what was happening there because... So often we get depictions of things like drag and gay bars in big cities. And it's like, people are picking up, people are doing drugs, people are partying and that kind of stuff. And 
and we're interacting with this space at what appears to be an early part of the night or maybe an off night. So we're not spending a ton of time there. It's not very crowded. And yet it has such an interesting vibe and decor to it. And I just thought, what does a small town gay bar look Mm. like in rural Nova Scotia? And especially one that appears to be frequented by indigenous two-spirited people. Like, uh, it it felt almost like a lost opportunity that we had to Mm. go here and just have a bit of a confrontation with a drag queen who's not very nice and then hit the road again. Well, and especially because this is, I think, an issue with the film as a whole, like, oftentimes the beats that don't need to last do and the, and the ones that you want more of don't and in general the rhythm of the film does feel a little bit um i don't know off for me i guess like right. much like you're just describing there's a scene that i want to see more of and i don't get it and then there's like that scene in the rehab facility house thing Mm -hmm. that's obvious like I wanted I got the point of that very quickly and yet we seemed to stay in that conversation for quite a while and so I think sometimes the film isn't quite confident in which moments are going to be of most interest to the audience yeah yeah so I know off air you flagged one area that you wanted to raise and that's the way that indigenous languages are handled because Mm -hmm. I'll confess there were times where I wasn't sure if I had broken my subtitles or not. And Mm. this is an interesting kind of larger issue that I've been encountering where shows have decided to creatively use or not use subtitles to reflect the lived experience of certain characters. So like if I don't speak Russian and I'm interacting with a Russian person, sometimes you won't get subtitles because I have no idea what they're saying. Mm -hmm, And that's the point. Yeah, yeah. So it's really meant to help the audience identify with particular characters and their situations. And here, it was so unusual, I'm going to say, because sometimes we were getting subtitles. And then other times we were not getting subtitles, but it didn't seem to reflect Link or Travis's experiences. And it wound up feeling almost arbitrary. Well, I will tell you that I had the same experience. (laughs) Okay. And because I had watched the film over a few days and because, you know, there were parts where I didn't feel like I had focused enough, Mm -hmm. I went back this morning and I rewatched a few key moments that I wanted to make sure I had really understood. Okay. And I turned the subtitles off (laughs) completely and I liked it better that way. I liked it better with no subtitles. It was like Mm. Link doesn't understand anything that's being said around him. No. Because I couldn't figure out the purpose of when subtitles were and weren't used, mm-hmm. I actually preferred the experience of just being, being left linked. out the whole time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, it, it was definitely one of those things where it almost took me out of the film because I kept trying to understand why certain scenes and why not other scenes. So it's intriguing to hear that your experience just worked better by saying like, nope, he just doesn't understand ever. And the story will press on regardless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I recognize that it's sort of a facile approach that I ended up taking. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. you know, in many ways, the simplest through line of this story is this kind of fish out of water narrative for Link, right? And slowly recognizing that this is the place that he is meant to be but that realization is really slow right the other piece of the language story that i have to say 
it didn't work for me. And I want to be really specific that it didn't work for me. And this isn't my experience, so I don't know. But it seemed like the language story, by which I mean Link's acquisition of the Mi'kmaq language, Mm -hmm. it seemed like it worked better if you read it metaphorically. Because Link seems conveniently able to acquire phrases and even whole sentences Mm -hmm. really easily when he needs to. And then the rest of the time, he's sort of shut out of the world, linguistically speaking. And so I get it, right? Because it's all around his mother in particular that he's motivated to and interested to learn the language. But it felt a little bit like I didn't understand what the rules were. Mm -hmm. And like... I want to be clear that it's okay if I didn't understand what the rules were. Sure. Like, I'm yeah. not the focal audience of this film, and I shouldn't be. Like, I'm not the person whose perspective is centered here, and I shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But I did struggle with it a little bit just in terms of following Link's character when he's quite communicative with his mother in Mi'kmaq at the end of the film. And I don't know if more time has passed or what I'm missing, but, like, for right. me, that was a little bit of a disconnect in a character who I otherwise felt very close to. Yeah, I'll confess one of the other areas that I occasionally struggled with, and this was intriguing because obviously I'm queer and it was one of the things that I was attracted to in the film. So I was excited to explore in particular Link and Pasme's two-spiritedness, which is how they identify this film. And there were a couple of different points where I also felt like I didn't have quite enough of a context to understand Link's journey in Mm. particular. Like, Pasme seems very comfortable with himself, despite the fact that he has been traumatized because his family has not accepted his sexuality, and that's part of the reason why he's on the road and just sort of aimless. Link, I couldn't figure out, like, during your synopsis, you were like, and he's two-spirited, and I was like... I wasn't ever sure that he even knew until he connected with that part of himself when he was interacting with Pazmi. And so I watched this with my husband and Brian wondered if it was because Link was actually a survivor of sexual assault. And we didn't get the impression necessarily from Arvin but rather the uncle figure who is played by Steve Lunn. He only appears in about one or two scenes, but he seems very kindly and possibly uh, queer or two-spirited himself. But Link seems very uncomfortable with the physicality Mm. and the touching, even though he definitely likes his uncle better than he likes his father. And I couldn't help but wonder if that was part of that resistance, like, Link doesn't want to be indigenous. He doesn't also want to be two-spiritedness. And it's not until he actually meets someone who shows him what it can be like and it can be positive that he accepts both facets of himself. Oh, that's very interesting. Also, I do want to say I get very frustrated with queer sex scenes involving two men where there is no either discussion of safe sex and or like actual practicalities newsflash folks you can't just uh swim behind a waterfall (laughs) and go to town it does not work that way in reality at all (laughs) i was like love victor season two led me to believe that it would not be like this right (laughs) yeah it felt like such a weird thing because i was like the filmmaker themselves identifies as two-spirited and i would think 
that they would know better. So I was actually very frustrated with that. I was like, this is really romantic and it's hot, but also this is fantasy. It doesn't work this way. I also think that heterosexual sex scenes in pools. To fair. Be fair. Yeah, yeah, like... <laughs> PSA, I've said this on other podcasts, uh, don't have sex in the water. It does not go well. (laughs) Joe, um, Mm -hmm. I have a question that's sort of along these lines, um, but maybe not quite. Okay. So I read several reviews, and more than one of them brought up the notion that Hannah here is borrowing perhaps too heavily from the film Moonlight, which I haven't seen. Uh, um, and I was wondering if you wanted to comment on that at all, because I have, even though I haven't seen Moonlight, I'm very helpful here, but I have a couple of thoughts that might be less borrowing and more homage but I'm curious mm-hmm. about your sense of it with the visuals in the first place. Yeah, so the scenes that they're referring to are definitely the encounter that they have on the waterfall, but also I think what happens afterwards where they have the kind of sit and connection on mm. the rocks. And that does both visually and narratively echo some very significant scenes from Moonlight, which of course is one of the most important queer texts to have come out in the last couple of years. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was a bit of a gentle homage, but also I don't know that Moonlight gets to say, oh, hey, I created the idea of a, you know, an emotional connection in front of a body of water. Okay, so why I found that interesting is because, you know, Moonlight is an important film in queer cinema and also mm-hmm. an important film in, in African-American cinema. Yeah, right. Um, and Windsor, Nova Scotia is one of the two major settlements of black loyalists in oh. Nova Scotia. So hmm. Windsor, Nova Scotia would have had, well, you know, people move and migrate. But there was a time when Windsor, Nova Scotia had one of the most significant black populations in Canada. Wow. And so I was wondering if, you know, the the critics who were reading that as sort of a straight borrowing, quote unquote, mm-hmm. did seem to be predominantly <laughs> white. And I'm wondering if there's more of a, you know, increasingly we talk about the impact of colonialism mm-hmm. on on both Black and Indigenous populations in Canada and the interrelationship between Afro-Indigenous community, right? And um, George Eliot Clark, when he writes about that part of Nova Scotia, he refers to Afro-Acadian-ness and he oh, connects it to, yeah, and he connects it to indigeneity, you know, because you've got these populations of people who have been ostracized and excised from mm-hmm. the main from the dominant settler community. Right. Um, and so there's obviously, you know, intermarriage and, and just solidarity among those groups. So anyway, I just wondered if maybe... They were missing the point? Yeah, I was just I was just wondering if there might be some resonance there that Hannon is getting to, because the main settlement in Annapolis Royal is Windsor. And so I presume that that is where those city-ish <laughs> scenes mm-hmm. are filmed. And it's certainly, or I presume that's where they're set. It is certainly where they were filmed, like the right. film was filmed in Windsor, Nova Scotia. So yeah, I don't know. When I saw those connections to Moonlight, even though I'm not, like I'm only familiar with the film as kind of a pop culture artifact, right. I wondered if there was something more trying to be commented on there, but I don't know. Oh, that is fascinating. And I would love if anyone listening happens to know. That mm-hmm. would be a really, yeah, I would love to know. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad we watched this, Joe. I was I was pleased you programmed it, and I was pleased I liked it so much. And I, I just, I really loved the ending. <laughs> I loved yeah. it a lot. <laughs> yeah. 
it was nice um albeit i mean i've I've criticized the film for occasionally veering into a sort of fantasy and Mm -hmm. i do think the fact that everything just really falls together and both brothers manage to find some kind of haven and maybe pasme as well i could see criticisms being leveled at the film that it's all just a little too simple and Mm -hmm. i I don't know that I could combat that. And yet I didn't have an issue with it. Like I was happy to see, you know what? I I don't need another traumatic two-spirited story. I don't need another traumatic indigenous story. Happy to just have these characters find a happy home. And that scene at the end where they're dancing on the beach, Mm -hmm. there was a part of my brain that was like, he would not have learned how to dance that fast. But the most of my brain was just really (laughs) delighted to see. And I, I think there's something really beautiful about... Lincoln's desire to keep Travis with him as he embarks on this new journey and that he doesn't want to lose that, even though everything he has known about his family before finding out his mother is still alive is something that he wants to move away from. But but Travis, Mm -hmm. he wants to continue to protect. And I think there's something really beautiful about the way Travis is part of that final scene with the two of them dancing together becomes the three of them. Yeah. No, it is sweet. It's definitely sweet. So shall we play a quick round of YA bingo with this movie? Let's do it. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so I'm going to say dead family, even uh-huh. though Sarah's not really dead. If he didn't think she was dead, there would be no movie. So right, dead family. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give it for good friendships mm-hmm. um, because Pazme's willingness to really stick around even though Lincoln is kind of a dick mm-hmm. for most of the beginning of their friendship. Yeah. I like Pazme a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give a stunt casting to Michael Gray Eyes because I'm always happy when Absolutely. he appears on the screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously filmed in the territory now known as Canada has never been a more apt square, Joe. Right? Never. <laughs> I mean, it's part of the reason why part of our mandate for the show is to cover... Canadian films, Indigenous films, all these all these good things that maybe might otherwise pass people by. But it's always nice when we program these and then we get to say, and also this film is really enjoyable and you're going to get some really beautiful, you know, visual iconography, geography, that kind of stuff. Like this feels like a lovely showcase for uh, the eastern part of Canada. It'll make you want to take a plane to Nova Scotia. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a square for perfect date, even though I did Mm. critique the sex scene. I do think that there's something incredibly memorable about the Mm -hmm. boys coming together. And then of course we obviously have a road trip. It's the whole purpose of the film. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and then I wonder if we could make a a claim for musicality as well, Mm. because this film does have a very pervasive soundtrack of both rap and kind of independent rock. And then even just that final moment on the beach where it is set Mm. to music and it feels incredibly joyous. Yes. And the hip hop is all primarily indigenous hip hop. And I think checking out the soundtrack is worth your time. It's really good soundtrack. Mm hmm. And an unfortunate uh, square, but there is obviously abuse in this film quite a lot at the beginning part. One of the things I like so much is that we get to see our boys travel away from the abuse and leave it behind. And I I Mm -hmm. love that for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So unless we want to give a square to Pazme as a queer secondary character, we do not have a line. 
What about as a queer secondary character, the uh, convenience store employee? <laughs> yes. Okay. You know what? I, I will take it. It's a little bit more of a cameo, but uh, there we go. Now I got yeah. a line. Yay! Yay! Good job, Wildhood. So, Brenna, uh, it's time to revisit another adaptation, and we're back to the world of comics. We are finally going to hang out with Miss Marvel, Joe. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. I've been a fan of G. Willow Wilson's series, Miss Marvel, and her amazing protagonist, Kamala Khan, since it first debuted. And mm-hmm. now we have a Disney Plus series, which means it made it to the top of the list for the show. I'm very, very excited. Yeah, so we're going to be covering the entirety of the six-episode first season, and uh, also, I think, reading about the first one to two to three volumes. It kind of depends on how much we want to reread, because you and I have both read all of them. Yes, definitely. I am probably going to reread a bunch of it, because I started it again last night, and I remembered how happy it makes me, so yay. Yeah. Um, And then if you're reading along with Book Club, our next Book Club pick coming up Fast and Furious is Cousins by Virginia Mm -hmm. Hamilton. Uh, And then we're going to be reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie with a whole bunch of caveats around talking about Sherman Alexie's work, but we'll get there when we get there. Yeah, yeah. And folks, of course, if you want to get in on the book club action, you are running out of time. So you need to get it in in the next couple of days, please. Yes. And so if you want to do that, you can find us on the Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Long form stuff about book club is best sent by email HKHSPod at gmail.com. And Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B still on my remote and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. So uh, Joe, until Mm -hmm. next time, we're reading. We're watching. And yeah. uh, I really hope people go check out Wildhood because it is a joy. Yeah. It, it's just a little slice of something different. And it's the kind of small independent Canadian film that can use the attention. So if you like it, amplify and uh, let us know if you enjoyed it. Until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. All of a sudden, at the end of the film, he's actually quite communicative with his mother in right. Ma- or Yeah, in, he's quite communicated. Com- taking it again. Mm-hmm. It's partially because of their... And it's partially because they don't have that kind of guiding... What am I even trying to say here? And then I want to talk to you about the... We're going to record next, so... Uh, Yeah, but we have to make it quick because I have to get a haircut in 20 minutes. How dare you? Okay, let's do this fast then. (laughs)